0: As Phil said earlier, the current series that we are in, (laughs) thank you, Um, Matt just gave me a little mini Jesus, so I feel very at peace now. Thank you. Um, I hope I do you proud. Um, So in our current series, we are working through seven signs as recorded by the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John. These signs or miracles are part of God's self-revelation through Jesus because God wants to be known. So God reveals part of God's self to us through the identity, the work of Jesus. And every time these revelations happen, these signs, they require a decision to be made on behalf of the witness. Will they choose to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, or will they choose to deny it? Last week in particular, Phil taught us about Jesus miraculously multiplying one boy's small meal of fish and bread in order to feed over 5,000 people. Jesus' food miracle recalled the Exodus story of the Old Testament when God provided manna, Or heavenly food through Moses to his beloved grumbling Israelites who were wandering the desert. The allusion to Moses was so clear that the crowds connected these dots. The excitement of Jesus as the prophet greater than Moses stirred the crowds into a frenzy. To understand this significance, It's important to remember that Judaism is based on how God revealed God's self to Moses. And then, through Moses, redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. That's when he chose them. He made them his chosen people. So this revelation of Jesus as greater than Moses was, like, kind of a big deal. Right at the end of last week's miracle... In John chapter 6, verse 14, it says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The mob wanted to force Jesus to be their king. Right then, right there. It's even possible, this is my own speculation, that Jesus' closest friends were also caught up in the hysteria. Because John mentions that Jesus slips away on his own to pray. This story is also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. And in those two stories, they say that Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross over the lake without him. And the Greek word used in both cases for insisted was anonke, which actually means forcing with a sense of urgency. So Jesus was not asking nicely, Jesus was distressed by the crowd's reaction and possibly even more so by his disciples. So he sends them away and retreats alone to the top of a mountain to pray. And here we have another hyperlink to Moses when he met with God on Mount Sinai. Now all of this provides important context for tonight's story. And while our series is taking us through the signs as told by the beloved disciple in the Gospel, John, I actually want to read the version of tonight's story from Mark. Sorry, John. Um, In Mark 6, I feel like it covers all the same ground, but adds some details that I really like that I think help kind of bring the story a little bit more clarity. So... In Mark 6, starting in chapter 45, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and Jesus was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Who wouldn't be? Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts had been hardened. So, first, we have the disciples who have been sent away by Jesus and are attempting to cross over a lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's a lake, and I was reading that at its widest part, it's maybe seven miles wide, so that's big. I couldn't swim seven miles to save my life, but by boat, this is a pretty simple journey, so it would normally be quick, but they're attempting it in the middle of these evening winds that were really common to the area because the lake was like almost a bowl with mountains surrounding, surrounding it. So Jesus is up on one of these mountains. He's praying, but he can see the disciples are facing extreme winds and making no progress. But I think Mark helps us understand that this was not a quick struggle. Mark says, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake. So evening could mean any time shortly before sunset. So around 6 p.m. is the guess. But Jesus does not reach them until the fourth watch of the night, which, according to the way that the Romans would split up their night watches, puts that at about 3 a.m. So this is eight-ish hours. They hadn't made any progress in this little boat of theirs they're stuck in the middle of the lake, exhausted, aching, fearing death. I'm sure that despair was settling in and very, very likely doubt. Where was God in these painful hours? Did they even blame Jesus? Because he wasn't in the boat with them. We've all been there, or I'm guessing, I know I have. Not like literally in a boat in the middle of a lake, but I have asked of God, where are you? It's easy to feel angry when you think God is absent. And I don't know, it doesn't say why it took Jesus so long to get to them, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that walking down a mountain across three miles of raging water probably took him like a little bit of time. What the story does say is that Jesus could see his disciples. That's kind of crazy to think about because it's nighttime, it's dark, he's far away up on a mountain. They're like a tiny speck in the middle of this lake, but he sees them straining at the oars. But they feel unseen. But God sees us. One of God's names given to him by Hagar, a slave woman of the Old Testament, is El Roy, which means the God who sees me. This is one of my favorite names for God. God. Because it's dark, and the water is rough and raging, and somehow Jesus sees his friends. And what Jesus does is the most important part of our story, the part that brings us hope. Jesus drew near to them. But before he even steps foot on the water, I believe that Jesus was interceding to the Father for his friends. These were his best friends. I have no doubt that he is pleading on their behalf to the Father in his time of prayer. That is what Jesus does. Then Jesus came to them, physically walking on the tempest, tempestuous waters. I put that in there because of our song that I like, and I was hoping Matt would sing it, but it's okay. God comes to us. That's crazy. But the disciples were far from recognizing that it was Jesus coming to them. Instead, they mistook what they saw as an evil omen, and rightfully so. (laughs) The image of dark, chaotic waters as a symbol of death, danger, destruction is deeply rooted in ancient belief. The Israelites tell the story of creation in Genesis 1 by saying the Spirit of God was hovering over the formless, watery deep. Tehom is Hebrew for the deep, and this was described in Hebrew as tohu wabohu. Say that. It's fun. This word is fun, but it means uncontrolled nothingness. So tehom is the symbol of chaos, and the spirit is hovering over it, over uncontrolled nothingness. But then God spoke and put the water in its place and called it good. God rules over and organizes chaos. All throughout the Old Testament, water is a destructive force and the home for dangerous creatures. It has not been that long since we did the series on Jonah. So, think about raging seas and being swallowed by a large fish. Scary. No wonder when they saw Jesus, they became more afraid. They believed he was a ghost. This makes me wonder why did Jesus walk out to the boat? I don't think he was being cruel. And in case you didn't know, Jesus had once already calmed a storm just by speaking when he and his disciples were caught in a boat during a storm. So it's like we've been here before, but the disciples are still terrified. So he could have spoken and calmed the waves, but he didn't. This means that Jesus wanted them to see him Drawing near. This is what we call an enacted parable. And when I was reading it, I don't know if you noticed, but Mark says, Jesus was about to pass them by. (laughs) And this phrase has often confused me. I don't know if you've noticed it before. I hadn't for a long time. Surely Jesus was not going to just walk by the boat. And surely Jesus did not have some other great reason for taking a stroll across a raging lake. But upon digging, this Greek phrase, to pass by, again, hyperlinks to places in Scripture where God reveals God's self in some type of human form. Just a few examples. In Genesis 18... God appears to Abraham in the form of a man to reassure him of the promises that would be fulfilled through the birth of a son. Abraham invites this man to dine with him so that he would not pass him by. In Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God in the form of a man, not letting this man go until he has received a blessing. In Exodus 33, God allows his glory to pass by Moses so that Moses would be assured of God's presence. So here, Jesus passes by or comes near in the same way, fully revealing himself as the truest manifestation of God in the flesh. And yet, our disciples who had just witnessed Jesus multiplying food to feed thousands and thousands of people, are afraid, and they let their fear take them to a place of terror. Until Jesus spoke. Because Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Again, Jesus hearkens us back to God in the Old Testament, introducing himself to Moses as I am. Jesus is not simply a prophet who is greater than Moses. Jesus is I am. At this, his friends finally get it. They see who he is, and they allow him to get in the boat. The winds cease, and they're likely unaware of the rest of the journey, lost in their relief and exhaustion and amazement of God's glory. And this amazement baffles me. Only Mark tells us the disciples had missed the point. This is the only gospel that says this. He says, they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. So in the sign, they see a miraculous material provision, a prophet giving food to hungry people. But they miss the more important spiritual provision by the God of the universe. Because they didn't understand that Jesus was God And Mark doesn't specify why their hearts were hardened, but we can speculate, or at least I always love to speculate. Throughout his ministry, Jesus performed amazing signs and miracles, but had stayed quiet for a long time about his identity as the Son of God. His disciples and his family were begging him to publicly declare what he had been teaching in private. So, when Jesus chose to perform this extremely public sign, declaring his divine power, they must have thought, This is the moment. It's now. But then Jesus refuses to allow the crowd to make him king. I suspect they were at the least disappointed, but probably angry because here they saw an obvious path for Jesus to take up his rule and drive out their Roman oppressors. And he says, no. Like Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, who saw that the forbidden fruit was good for food and wisdom, so she ate it. The 12 saw in their own eyes that Jesus was good for food and wisdom. What they wanted was good, but Jesus' kingdom is so much bigger, was so much greater than they could imagine. So I don't think they intended to act against God, but they still didn't see God's bigger picture so they joined in with the excited mob, and their hearts were hardened by Jesus' denial of the way that they deemed good. Because that's what humans do. We see things that are good, and we want them in our own way, in our own time, and without God. And even with all of that, their doubt and despair did not cause Jesus to turn his back On his disciples. Jesus came to his friends, their fear and despair drawing him near. Despite the darkness, despite the deep, he used used the raging water to achieve his purposes. After the disciples saw Jesus walk across the water, they knew he was God in the flesh. And that empowered them to follow Jesus to the cross and then deliver his message to the ends of the earth in the face of opposition and martyrdom. Sure, they messed up along the way. But God doesn't expect us to always get it right. In Jesus, we see what God is like. Our transcendent, Yet, personal God wants to come to us to be known and to use the chaos of life to transform us. Like the disciples, how often do we miss God coming to us because our focus is on the chaos? Our lives as Christians are not easy. I don't need to tell you that. <laughs> They're not always comfortable. We face suffering of all kinds, and darkness often appears to be in control. That's the human experience. Not the way that God designed it, but the way that we have made it. But this enacted parable teaches us that God sees us and comes to us, and our sorrow brings him nearer to us. So let's take a step back. What's in the story for us? I don't know that you're going to see Jesus crossing any lakes to come rescue you anytime soon. But where are you looking? What is consuming your heart right now? You have to name your fear. Is it doubt because you just don't even know what to think about God anymore? Anger because you've been hurt by someone you love? Guilt because you have hurt someone you love? Fear because so much of life is out of your hands? Sadness because God didn't show up how you hoped? You have to name your fear and look it in the face. Then receive Jesus' words. Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. I don't think that Jesus is saying you're not allowed to be afraid. I think he's warning us against letting fear become all that we are. Living our life from a place of fear. Fear. It was with these words, though, and with Jesus' presence, that the disciples could finally see who he really was. So let the truth of who God is change your focus. This can be as simple as a quick breath prayer. Like, Lord, have mercy on me, according to your unfailing love, I don't know if you've practiced breath prayer, but first you inhale, and you say the first half. Lord, have mercy on me. And then you exhale, according to your unfailing love. And repeat all day long, whenever it comes to your mind. Because God is merciful, and his love for you is unending or we can reflect on a longer prayer that declares truth about God. That's why the Bible's fantastic. (laughs) One of the reasons. This week, I recommend Psalm 65 because it clearly tells us of God's power, specifically over water, and how he controls it for our blessing. Lastly, Ask the Spirit to show you where God is during your painful hours. Ask to see God coming to you. I promise God is coming to you. Let's pray. Dear God, fill our hearts. With your truth. Help us to see you as you really are. Help us to find you coming after us. It might not automatically fix whatever trouble we're in, but you promise to be with us. So we're never alone. Thank you for controlling chaos. Thank you for designing earth in a way that brings forth so many blessings. Help us to see you in those blessings. I pray for the people in our community who feel surrounded by the waves and don't know where you are. May your spirit draw nearer. Pull them closer. Thank you that you want to be known and you reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.